0: one of the funny things about, about we Christians is that I think we generally have two speeds. We talk about things as the utmost importance, like this is the gospel and we, and everything else is not important at all. So, so this is why you have conversations about what is the very like bare minimum of something a person has to say they believe in order to get to heaven, right? It's, it's like, let's get down to what is the heart, the most important and everything else just gets talked about as unimportant. So I think we need a few more speeds. I mean, you need to be able to say, you know, look, this is really, really important, uh, but it's not the gospel. You know, that's at a that's at a higher level of importance than this thing is, even though I think this is really important, and I'm gonna try to get you to, to agree with me on it.
1: Welcome to The Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully and today I'm talking with Greg Gilbert. Greg serves as senior pastor at Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He's also the author of a number of best-selling books including, What is the Gospel? from Crossway. Today Greg and I discuss why Christians so often struggle to clearly define a simple yet foundational concept, the gospel. He highlights the temptation that we all face to subtly subtract from or add to the gospel in response to various cultural pressures. He explains why he doesn't like or use the phrase, this or that is a gospel issue. And he responds to the common critique that evangelicals often have an overly individualistic view of the gospel. Let's get started. Greg, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast.
0: Thanks, Matt. Good to be with you.
1: Uh, so the gospel is is such a foundational idea, a foundational concept for every Christian. Uh, I would guess that virtually no one listening right now would deny that. Uh, and even the name evangelical, the kind of the dominant Bible believing Christian group in the U.S., uh, has that word "evangel" in the name, which means gospel. Uh, and yet, I think all of us can attest to the experience of talking with other Christians and quickly realizing that perhaps uh, people ye- mean different things by that word gospel uh, depending on uh, who 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 they' who they are, where they're coming from, and what their experiences have been. So Max, my first question is, if the gospel is so central to Christianity and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, why aren't we more unified on what that word actually means?
0: Yeah, well, I, th- I I mean, first of all, I think you're right. I think if you were to ask 100 self-proclaimed evangelicals what the gospel is, you'd end up with 60 or 70 different answers. You know, some people would want to put the, the resurrection of Jesus right at the center of it all, and they wouldn't much mention the cross um, at all, except as a way to sort of get Jesus dead so mm. that he can rise again. Um, other people want to talk about the the transformation of the world. Um, just a lot of different things that are, that are talked about and... Uh, become a part of the conversation. Um, you know, as for the why, I think I think probably it's a it's a combination of uh, different experiences that people have, uh, things they want to protect, things they want to push forward, things they want to emphasize or de-emphasize, uh, even arguments that they've been in in the past. Hmm. Uh, you know, there are hermeneutical questions at stake, like where do you start in trying to define the gospel? Do you, uh, do you start with You know, every occurrence of the word gospel in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, or do you start with uh, the preaching at Pentecost? Uh, There's just a lot of different questions about where to start. And once you throw that spear, uh, how you begin throwing it, like where you start, Mm. is really going to determine where it ends up.
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting analogy. Um, Something you said a minute ago about how sometimes it's, it's arguments that people are trying to respond to or make or issues that they're seeing, they're reacting to those. Uh, have you ever observed that, that, you know, in terms of how we do theology generally, but even specifically when it comes to how we understand the gospel, how much of our understanding is, is influenced by the cultural moment that we're in, the theological battles that we're having? And, and is there a danger there that our understanding of this central tenet of, of the Christian faith, the central tenet, uh, can be distorted because of all those swirling uh, contexts. Oh, it, oh,
0: yeah, absolutely. There's there's that danger. Uh, you know, that's the uh, that's the charge that's often made against the reformers, you know, Martin Luther, John Calvin, yeah. is that their understanding of the gospel was uh, uh, shaped and even created by the controversy they were having with the Roman Catholic Church. So it became this forensic thing, mm. uh, a transactional thing. Uh, that's the charge that's made against them. Um, I, I don't think that charge is true. I, I think they, I think they read the Bible. Um, it was back to this back to the sources. Ad fontes was one of the, uh, the main principles that they had. I think they read the Bible correctly. Um, and it just happened to answer a whole lot of what the Roman Catholic church w- was doing wrong. Yeah. Um, then, but, but I think the same thing happens even today, you know? So for example, if, uh, you know, if uh, if one of your main personal uh, kind of passions is to to see the world made into a better place, there's something powerful in being able to say, "And the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about making the world a better place mm, to live." Yeah. So if if you can hook your cart up to that horse, or really, if you can hook that horse up to your cart, <laughs> uh, you you can really get a lot of uh, uh, a lot of traction on it's it. It's kind of the so, ultimate so it's a Trump temptation. card. Yeah. Oh, it's a huge temptation. If you care about this thing, and the gospel is about this thing, you win that argument.
1: Yeah, right. So then how have you sought to even protect your own understanding of the gospel from what I think is oftentimes not even a conscious preoccupation with something? We genuinely believe that this issue in front of me is a serious central issue. So then yeah, how do you think about protecting your own understanding and your own theology from... Those kinds of influences.
0: Well, the, I mean, the first thing, of course, is just uh, the the principle of sola scriptura, right? I I want to have uh, both an intellectual and spiritual and very personal commitment to that principle, and I want to make sure that everything else that I care about is uh, is being subjected to the authority of scripture. Mm. So. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, I mean, obviously, there's some subjectivity in that. And I think that's why the Lord puts us in churches with other believers uh, to hold each other accountable. But but even the commitment is really important, right? Because yeah. if you deny the commitment and you just say, the things I care about are the things that everyone should care about, uh, and those are not subject to any sort of, uh, uh, you know, norming corrective, you're going to find yourself in all kinds of trouble. Mm, so even yeah. the commitment to Sola Scriptura is, is good, even if there's still you know, some subjectivity and how you're going to read the scriptures and all the all the rest of it. Um, another thing is that I think you've got to have, I think you've got to have strong categories to be able to distinguish between what is the heart of the gospel message, right? The the kerygma, the proclamation from the king, and all the implications that come out of that. Hmm. So one huge temptation among evangelicals is to take something that's an implication and in order almost always to emphasize it, make it more important. We want to grab it and rope it in as tightly as possible to the gospel. And you can you can start to use words that wind up confusing implications for heart. And so I think it's just a good discipline, even if you care deeply about something, to be able to say, this thing is super important, but it's not the gospel, right? I'm just going to I'm just going to admit that up front and allow that it's not, even if I think
1: it's super important. And what would be the implications for acknowledging that something is not the gospel? The implications for acknowledging that it's not? Yeah, yeah in terms of how we go about then discussing those things.
0: Oh, well, I, one of the funny things about about we Christians is that I think we generally have two speeds. We talk about things <laughs> as the utmost importance, like this is the gospel, and, we, and everything else is not important at all. So, so this is why you have conversations about what is the very like bare minimum of something a person has to say they believe in order to get to heaven, right? It's, it's like, let's get down to what is the heart, the most important, yeah. and everything else just gets talked about as unimportant. So I think we need a few more speeds. I mm. mean, you need to be able to say, you know, look, this is really, really important, uh, but it's not the gospel. You know that's at a that's at a higher level of importance than this thing is. Even though I think this is really important, and I'm going to try to get you to to agree with me on it.
1: Uh, if you had to put it succinctly, how would you define the gospel?
0: Yeah. Well, the the way I've it depends on how it depends on how much you want to talk about this, but uh, the way I've I've defined the, the heart of the gospel in, in the book that I wrote, What Is the Gospel, is basically propositions about God about us as human beings, about Jesus Christ, uh, and about the response that we owe to Jesus. Um, now, you, you, can, you can get more complicated than, than you know, those propositions, but they are essentially that uh, God created us. We are accountable to him, therefore. Uh, we've sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. Uh, and for that rebellion, we deserve a penalty of death. And yet God in his love uh, sent Jesus, the eternal son of God, uh, to become a human, live the life we ought to have lived, uh, die the death that we deserved for our sin and rebellion against Him, and then rise again so that as we're united to Him by faith, we too rise to, to newness of life and the hope of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. So um, that, I think, is the heart of it. And then from there, uh, like if that's the wicked gate, uh, so, you know, to use a, a Bunyan category, if, if, if those propositions are the wicked gate, uh, uh, all of the blessings of eternity... Uh, and of the new heavens and new earth and reconciliation and all the rest of it, all those blessings get referred to as gospel in the New Testament. Mm. It's like a wide-angle lens on all those great blessings. But the Bible will also zoom in and call gospel what I just kind of articulated to you. Which, And the reason it does that is because all of those great blessings of the new heavens and new earth, reconciliation, all the rest of it, you don't get any of those blessings Except by coming through that wicked gate of recognizing you sin and trusting in Christ and His life, death and resurrection. Hmm. So it's an interesting way the Bible uses the word. It, it will never refer to like the new heavens and new, the promise of the new heavens and new earth. It will never refer to that alone as gospel. It will refer to forgiveness of sins through Christ's life, death and resurrection, as gospel. And then it will refer to all of that together as gospel but it's very precise and careful in exactly how it'll use the word.
1: So then would that be an argument that there actually could be multiple ways that we would use that word in our own language, that we don't have to maybe try to nail down a definition quite as rigorously as as we might assume?
0: Well you should nail it down as rigorously as the Bible nails it down. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it, it's, it doesn't give you license to just make it up as you go, mm-hmm. like the Bible uses it in some very particular ways uh, and we ought to, we ought to use it in all those ways because we're people of the book. Um, but we should use it only in those ways too because we're people of the book. Yeah. So we shouldn't be like importing our own definitions
1: into, into the word. So then maybe help walk us through some of those imported definitions. What have you encountered? Whether it's uh, just simple, slight, nuance misunderstandings of the gospel, or perhaps it's full-blown distortions of the gospel. Give us some concrete examples of that.
0: Oh, uh, there are a few. Uh, I mean, you'll hear, you'll hear people use the word gospel, uh, and they'll say things like, "The good news, the gospel, is that uh, God is about the work of remaking the world, making the world, you know, uh, more in line with His shalom." Or they'll put it in a lot of different ways. And the good news is that that as God is doing that work, He has called us to be a part of that work along along with Him. So, uh, you know, I mean. The remaking of the world is something that God is doing and in the broadest sort of wide angle lens sense that may be one of the blessings of the gospel out there um Mm -hmm. but the bible will never ever talk about the remaking of the world kind of full stop as as gospel Mm -hmm. it's always the remaking of the world because of what Jesus Christ did on on the cross and you're only a part of that new world as you come to him through through his life death and Mm -hmm. resurrection so that's one. Um, people have argued, various various folks have argued that uh, gospel ought to be understood basically as Jesus is Lord, full stop, or Jesus is King, full stop. Um, and uh, I, the Bible just doesn't talk like that, right? It talks about uh, Jesus is Lord and Jesus is dying and saving Lord. That's That's sort of gospel and how all of that works. But it never puts a full stop at the end of those sentences. Hmm. That's just not how the Bible uses that word.
1: I'm struck by those two examples that you gave. Uh, The tricky thing about them is that both of them are true in and of themselves. There's a truth to Mm -hmm. those statements. Jesus is Lord. He is King. Uh, God (laughs) is about recreating, renewing the world. And and so the, the issue is that they're not saying enough or they're saying the wrong thing and giving it, labeling it as something that they're not. How much of that uh, do you think is at play when it comes to just thinking rightly about not just the gospel itself, but even theology? Is it, it it feels like it's often less about, you know, oh, what you said about God is actually wrong, and it's more that the emphasis is wrong, perhaps, or you're not saying something that is true.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. One of the, I think one of the great marks of a theologian is to be able to make correct distinctions and, and be very precise in categories and language. So uh, you know, to take a to take a biblical word and apply it uh to a true statement but in the wrong category is still theologically harmful. Mm. So uh, you know, so to take a, a true statement like Jesus is Lord, right? The scripture teaches that, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, uh that's good, right? And then you take a word like gospel that the Bible uses and that also is good, but you can't equate the two yeah. or you know two goods don't two goods don't make a correct. They make an incorrect in that in that sense, yeah, so yeah, in the same in the same way you could do that with anything you know you could say uh, you know marriage is the union of one man and one one woman before God in covenant, right And then you, but if you apply the wrong category to that, you're actually doing incorrect theology. If you call that gospel, you're doing incorrect theology. Mm. so well- you just have to be careful to make those category distinctions very clear and keep them clear mm. over time and through
1: logic. Yeah. Well, you're a pastor and and I would imagine that you've seen this. This seems like a common thing that 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 regular Christians might struggle with at times where they they hear their favorite Bible teacher, they you know, a popular Christian speaker or influencer online and they might make these subtle category uh Mistakes, uh, whether intentionally or not, but they're using the same language. They're 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 not saying anything that's flat out not true. Uh, how have you helped sought to help your people in your church to to think about those things critically and to, to keep those things straight uh, when it can kind of get a little bit confusing? I think at times. Yeah.
0: Well, I'd say it's, I'd say a couple of things. One is is trying to keep my own thinking on it straight. So, uh, like for example, I don't I don't for Uh, mostly for effect, I do not use a phrase like this is a gospel issue to talk about something that is an implication of the gospel Mm -hmm. that we believe. Now, I know that a phrase like this is a gospel issue punches that up in terms of importance, right? It's rhetorically powerful, Um, but it also confuses the line. Because exactly what you're trying to do with the phrase gospel issue is pull that thing in Uh, and not draw hard lines. And I want to draw hard lines Mm. in order to keep it clear uh, in my own head. And then just, I think, saying the same thing over and over to the congregation and preaching, um, basically catechizing them in, this is the heart of the gospel, right? And so that little thing that I gave you at the beginning of the the podcast is something that I say nine and a half out of ten sermons at Third Avenue. Like those sentences will come out of my mouth. Um, and so, what I what I hope anyway is that uh, you know when my people encounter somebody else who starts to launch into that, and then it goes a different direction, <laughs> I'm hoping they'll be able to recognize that.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's... It'll
0: at least flag it in their heads, like, oh, that's different than what my pastor says. Yeah, right. And you he have... didn't mention the resurrection, or he didn't mention crucifixion, or this or that.
1: Yeah. Well, and you you haven't assumed that people have an understanding. I think that's another thing that we can often do as well. You say you're a Christian and you actually know some Bible verses, and you go to church consistently, and we're we're in a small group together, and we pray together, and therefore, there's the assumption that you understand the gospel, um, which isn't always the case.
0: Oh, it's it's so true. Which is why uh, I think every Christian preacher needs to preach the gospel in every sermon. Like it, it needs to be a, a main. Point, and you need to have some people holding you accountable to do that. Hmm. Um, I've been, I was, I, I've spent six weeks in the last month and a half preaching through the Book of Proverbs. Um, through, not really through preaching around the Book of Proverbs anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> spot spot check. Hard to Proverbs. preach through that one. Verse it is by hard verse. to preach through it. Yeah, and I've got a group of people who give me uh, feedback on on each and every sermon, and uh, you know, it's men, women, members of the church. It's like a dozen people, and. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, they nailed me and said, "You know, you did a great sermon on how to handle money and jobs, but you didn't really say anything about the gospel." And you know, I think if anybody was here who wasn't a Christian, uh, they they could not have been saved from what you said mm. this Sunday. And so I I fixed that big time.
1: Yeah. The yeah. next the next week. Huh. So from time to time we hear critiques of common evangelical approaches to sharing the gospel and you know, understandings of the gospel, along the lines of quote, you know, evangelicals have an overly individualistic view of the gospel that is overly focused on ideas of personal salvation, you know, getting to heaven, getting out of hell. Uh, and misses other central facets of the gospel itself. That's kind of where I think you would encounter that that argument of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord, he is king, and that the kingdom of God is coming, that kind of a thing. So what do you make of critiques like that? Is there a ring of truth to that? Um, And how would you process that?
0: Well, I don't know that you can... (laughs) It's a strange thing. I don't know if you can be overly individualistic when you talk about the Gospel, because it is about individuals being saved by Jesus. I do, however, think you can be underly cosmic with it. Mm. So you can make it you can make it all about you and Jesus and the transaction that happens between you so that you can get yours when when it all is said and done, and miss out on the on the cosmic beauty and bigness of the whole thing. Um, And the tragic thing is, is I I think the gospel is, it's just way, it's just way more, it's, it it just gets more compelling, even rhetorically, when you realize, you know, the the roots of it in in the Old Testament and the identity of Jesus as, as Messiah and the coming new heavens and new earth, you know, I mean, it's compelling as a transaction to just you know as they say get your butt out of out of hell <laughs> you know there's something compelling about that but boy when you see the whole grand sweep yeah. of the of the thing it's even more compelling you know to anybody who's listening to it so yeah. so it's it's a little bit of a mystery why some evangelicals in you know probably past present and future have been underly cosmic with it yeah but I would never ever want to say it. I would never want to downplay the the fact that it is, in fact, individuals being saved by Jesus—that mm-hmm. just seems—it's it, it, just integral to the whole thing. And so, I don't—I don't know how you—I don't know how you downplay that. Yeah. It just
1: is. It's so. It's not an either or. It's a both and. Oh yeah. Hmm. So so, keeping in mind everything we've talked about thus far, uh, what do you think of some believers' emphasis on a kind of? to use C.S. Lewis's words, a mere Christianity, you know, trying to find that core of what it means to be a Christian, the core tenets of, uh, I guess in this case, the gospel. How do you view that kind of uh, approach or that kind of mindset in relation to what you've said about the gospel and, and um, making sure that we understand it correctly? Uh, well, I... <laughs> I
0: mean there's some use in it right
1: you you need to
0: you need to sort of define what the what the charisma is as opposed to you know the the implications of the gospel um uh you you need to define that so so there's some good in it but if i'm going to give a like if i'm going to create a life project for myself it's it's not going to be to focus on less and less and less of the glory of what god has given us it's going to be to try to focus on more and more and more of it Mm. so uh yeah, I think you start with a, a tight little a, a tight little understanding of what what the what the Evangelion is, and then you go out from there. Hmm. But I I just don't know why you would I don't know why anybody would want to be mere in in their understanding of the God. Like it seems like the exact opposite of what I would want to do. Yeah, is, is be mere in my understanding of Christianity.
1: Yeah.
0: So, so I think what Lewis meant by that was not the smallest thing ever, uh, or the smallest thing imaginable. He just meant let's let's try to get rid of all the extraneous stuff let's just
1: let's just talk from you know from from the ground up mm. which which
0: can be a it can be a useful thing
1: yeah yeah well, it seems like people can contend to either go that direction where it's it's the, the the lowest common denominator possible but then on the other hand we've already other hand and we've already kind of hit on this uh some people tend more towards this broad vision of the gospel so that kind of everything becomes a gospel issue whatever their pet issue is is now labeled a gospel issue um, so I wonder what unpack again some of the dangers of that kind of approach. Obviously, it is rhetorically powerful, but that's that's not a good reason to do something just because you're going to win the argument. What are some of the dangers of that?
0: Uh, well, I mean, most obviously, just just getting getting the gospel wrong, right? You you can lard it up with so many good things uh, that it it just becomes unwieldy and undefined, and and that would be the that would be the worst thing. So, uh, you know, I mean, if I if I were of that mindset to to those people who kind of took me to task for not preaching the gospel, I could have made all kinds of arguments back to them about why managing your money well, especially when it's in wisdom and proverbs, man, that's all part of the gospel. That's the good news from God. I did preach the gospel, da da da. But the statement they made to me was nobody could have gotten saved by what you said that morning, mm. and and I think that's true and and helpful. Like you're not going to stand before God and say, I managed my money well, according to the principles laid out in the book of Proverbs and him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Right. That's, that's not how it works. So you can water it down so much that you, that you lose it. Um, And then that, that will affect your proclamation. That'll affect your, your preaching. It'll affect the way you do evangelism. Um, So Mm. yeah, I mean, every, every organization in the world, including the church needs like a a lightning sharp message and reason for its existence and that's why corporations spend millions of dollars on you know ad development and mission development vision statement development it's because they're trying for that lightning sharp declaration of who they are and why they exist the the genius thing about the church is that that lightning sharp definition and and uh, message has been given to us by the King. And so being really clear on what that is and not letting it just become marshmallow cream everywhere mm-hmm. uh,
1: is is really important. So how would you respond to the person who's who's listening and and says, yes, I can acknowledge that this issue over here is not synonymous with the gospel, but it feels like there's such a direct connection. there's such a direct and inevitable and undisputable implication from the gospel perhaps that it is legitimate for me to sort of link them together very strongly and say this is a gospel issue. You know, what what's your response to that kind of a thing?
0: Well, I'd just say lose the label, right? Say say what you said right there uh so that people can follow along with you and know exactly what you think about it. But but don't just don't just resort to a label like gospel issue mm. that you have to be aware is doing some kind of under the table rhetorical work. Huh. Like, like tell people what you actually think about this issue that is inextricably related to the gospel, but is not the gospel. Like, why is that so hard to say? Huh. Why do, why do, why do you need to go for that rhetorically, eh, slightly deceitful label,
1: Yeah, you know, that's, that's really gospel issue. Huh? That's an interesting way like, to put it. It's rhetorically under the table, doing some work for you that you're not really, maybe fully acknowledging.
0: Yeah. Because, because you wouldn't Like, it's just not clear. Right? So if you, if you ask me. Uh the, the the death of Jesus on the cross, the atoning death of Jesus on the cross, Greg, is that a gospel issue? I'm gonna say yes, right? That is a gospel issue. So I can use that for things that are right in the heart of the, the gospel, but people also use them for things that are out here a little bit. But if you were to say to me something like, Hey Greg, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, is that uh an implication of the gospel that's inextricably tied to the gospel but is not the gospel itself? Well, of course, I'm going to say no mm. because it's something, it's something different from that. Yeah. So, I think if you're using a phrase that's that confusing, you just jettison it mm. and say what you mean and mean what you say.
1: Yeah. Give us an example of an issue of a doctrinal issue that you feel like is inextricably tied to the gospel, is so important, uh, and really, uh, a Christian should hold a certain view on it, and yet you would still be very careful to say, but that is not the gospel.
0: Uh, baptism.
1: Unpack that a little bit.
0: Uh, well I just mean that baptism is defined by by the I'm a Baptist, right? So uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's defined by the gospel. It defines the community of the gospel. The symbolism uh, is a is a picture of the gospel, an emblem of the gospel. So it's very much a gospel issue, quote unquote, right? It is a it is an issue. That is related inextricably to the gospel, formed by it, shaped by it. Create, you know, creates its community. We Baptists kind of believe, or, or at least marks out the community of the gospel. Um, and yet, baptism is not the gospel, right? We can draw a, a sharp distinction between mm. between baptism and the message of the gospel.
1: Yeah. Well, Let's dig into a little bit of the the message of the gospel itself, and and obviously one of those core elements is the idea that uh, humanity is sinful, that we have this sin. That is separating us from God. And, and I think one of the main ways that we often hear Christians talk about sin is in terms of a broken relationship with God, uh, that there's a loss of the intimacy that we once shared with God and that we could share with God someday uh, through Christ. And so while that's true, you do point out in, in the book that if you stop there, that's actually a somewhat reductionistic understanding of sin. I wonder if you could unpack that. What, what's wrong with just viewing sin as a broken relationship?
0: Uh, well, it, it dodges the point, right? It's true that that uh, sin is a... Well, it's really not a broken relationship. Broken relationship is the result of sin. Um, but the human problem... If you, if you say the human problem is a broken relationship with God, you're sort of dodging the point mm. because the fact is we human beings are the ones who broke the relationship, right? And it wasn't even just like, you know, a boyfriend and girlfriend having a fight and breaking their relationship. It was more like subjects rebelling against the king, hmm. uh, w- which, which is like death penalty time, right? Um, so to put it in terms of just relationship being broken allows you to color that in with any context you want, right? I mean, it can be, you, you can analogize that to, uh, a son and a father. You can analogize it to a boyfriend and a girlfriend, a husband and a wife. You can make it really soft. It can be two friends who had a falling out, you know, and You know, it can be in the context of two people who have wronged each other or who have just drifted away. But in the Bible, it's you have rebelled against the one who created you and is the source of your life, Um, which which carries a death penalty in the way Mm. by logic, like by reason. You know, it doesn't even it doesn't even step on our toes much logically to say you deserve to die for that the way it would if, if you're
1: controlling analogies like boyfriend and girlfriend or Mm. just two friends. Mm. Are there other ways in which you think that we uh, often think and talk about sin that do kind of have that same effect of downplaying maybe the the gravity of it, the weightiness of the offense?
0: Yeah, I think one of the most most common ways is uh, uh, just to think of sin as uh, bad things that we do. You know, just actions, thoughts, words, deeds. You know, a lot of times our confessions will be Um, that way, which is, it's just, Lord, we have sinned in word and thought and and deed, right? We've done things that we shouldn't have done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's there's probably somebody listening
1: right now who's thinking, yeah, that's sin. What's wrong with that?
0: Yeah, well, well, it is sin. It's just, again, not enough because sin now is not just the actions and thoughts and words and deeds uh, that have messed up the outer shell of you and you're basically pure all the way through um sin is, sin is now shot through into your very heart and identity such that you are a sinner you know you, you you are one who has set yourself in it's not that just it's not just that you have rebelled it is that you are now a rebel by identity um we were by nature paul said i mean that's deep by nature i mean we'd even shy away from that that kind of language i think yeah. if we didn't have it right there in the bible by nature children of wrath so your very identity and character nature is is changed by by the fact that you're a sinner
1: mm. and, and that sort of implies then that it's not enough just to decide to stop sinning that there is a f- more fundamental internal problem that has to be fixed
0: yeah i mean you're 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 dead it's it's not even like you can uh, it's not even like you can just make a decision to turn over a new moral leaf I mean, you need uh, you, you know, the same the same word that created the universe has to be spoken over you so that your dead soul comes to life. I mean, it really is a kind of, uh, it, uh, you know, in your own heart, a creation ex nihilo, you know, out of nothing you were created yeah. alive. So uh, Paul talks about that in, in Romans 4, and it's just extraordinary. It's like the same power that created the universe is required to bring your dead soul to life. Mm. So when the Lord speaks your name as one of the elect, brings you to life. That same word, had he wanted it to, could have created a universe. Mm, Yeah. Which is an incredible thing to think about.
1: So another word that's often used in many different ways is the word faith, uh, our response to the gospel, to the good news. And I think part of the problem with faith, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is that there, in addition to being just a variety uh, of ways the word is used in Scripture and... Uh, just debates there on how should we understand that word biblically. There's also this broader cultural resonance beyond Christianity with this word faith. Uh, do you think that those broader, frankly, non-Christian conceptions of faith sometimes affect the way that Christians use and understand that word?
0: Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I think, I think if, you, if you take most Christians and push them to the wall— with questions like, you know, why do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? You know, they'll try a few things generally, like archaeology has proven that the, you know, whatever. Have you tried but this then, before? Oh, yeah. Well, I've had it done to me. Yeah. <laughs> and and you, you know, I think I think the the, the sort of readout of last last d- defense for most Christians is, well, it's just a matter of faith. Right. I just take it on. I just take it on faith, which means. I don't really have any good reason for it like i'm out of reasons i have nothing else to say to you so i'm just going to retreat into this fortress of faith and slam the doors on you um but that's not that's not all what the bible's definition is i mean the bible's definition of faith is to rely on something that is reliable you've got good reasons for it you've checked it out uh, you've tested it and now you're gonna now you're gonna lean on it or step on it like a bridge or sit down on it like a chair right you you, you have faith in that thing and therefore you rely on it because it is reliable.
1: Mm. So then how does that fit with a passage like Hebrews 11, 1, uh, where the author writes, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, some people can take that verse uh, to be, yeah, yeah, faith is this kind of thing. We, we, it's It's a blind thing. We can't see what we're believing in, and there's a level of just sort of going all in, jumping all in, and yeah. and in a sense, hoping for something to be the way that we hope it is.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the way people read that verse is that it is somehow that the words hoped for and not seen mean to the author of Hebrews that he doesn't have any good reason for mm. trusting in those things. Right. And yet... The guy has literally just spent 10 chapters laying out in great detail his reasons for thinking Jesus is reliable. Yeah. So what he's saying by chapter 11 is we have good reasons, even though we can't see it. I mean, hope is a strong word too. Hope does not mean wish. Hope means like, I'm convicted that this is going to happen.
1: I'm going to build my life on this.
0: Yeah, it's it's not a wish in the Bible. So hope is built on good reasons. So he's saying... Faith is the assurance of things hoped for in the strong sense. Like we got good reasons for this and and the assurance of, yeah, it's things that are not seen, but that doesn't mean we have no evidence for it. We've actually got great evidence that I've just spent 10 chapters laying out for you. And so faith is a is actually a really strong thing. Even though you can't see it, mm. there are other reasons other than
1: sight. Yeah, well, that's a great example then of the way that sometimes, even as we read scripture, and aren't reading in, in context, aren't understanding uh, how these words are actually being used, uh, we can maybe sometimes even take the opposite meaning from what we actually should be finding in a passage like that.
0: Oh, totally. Yeah, you. Anytime you, anytime you pull Bible verses out of their context, uh, you, you can do all kinds of magic with them. Mm. So I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then you get crushed by the 500-pound weight you were trying to lift. Yeah, you know, yeah. that
1: sort of thing. <laughs> so what about repentance? That's another term that uh, is in Scripture often paired with faith. Uh, repent and believe. Um, what does repentance mean, and how does that relate to faith?
0: Well, repentance is repentance is the flip side of the coin of faith. So you don't you don't get faith without repentance. You don't get repentance without faith. So uh, it's interesting in the Bible repentance, repentance means to turn, right? So you're headed one direction, you turn around and you go the other direction. And it's interesting that both the word repent and the word faith in the new Testament are talked about in terms of turning. So, uh, when it comes to repentance, usually you're talking about turning away from something, sin, right? Idols, whatever it is with faith you're said to be turning to god and and yet it's it's not two actions that you're doing you know first you turn away from sin then you turn to god it's one action you know if you stand in the middle of the room and you're facing you know one wall and you're going to turn around and face the other wall you you turn away from the first wall and toward the second wall in one action mm, yeah. right so so that's what that's what faith and repentance are they're they're both talking about the same action of turning away from sin and toward God to rely on Christ but they're just looking at it from two different perspectives mm. in, in in one sense it's saying you know this is turning away from sin the other one is saying it's turning to God but it's all it's all one action and you can't have one without the other
1: yeah i was going to say that and that's why you can say <laughs> that that they always coexist so, so you would say if someone says yeah i have faith uh, but i'm still struggling or I'm still not quite ready to give up this or that thing, uh, would you say then that they don't really have faith?
0: Yeah, because basically what you're saying there is, uh, Jesus, you know, here's, here's my faith. You know, I believe that you are who you say you are, right? I'm relying on you, trusting you. You're the eternal Son of God. You're the Savior, you're the Redeemer. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But you're not my king. You know, you're, I, I I still have this other king over here, this idol that I want to have in my life. So you can be my savior, but you can't be my lord. All that all that jazz. Mm. It's just to say you don't really have faith. Yeah, you know, all you're doing is is saying a bunch of propositions that are true about Jesus, but that's not relying on Him. Mm. To rely on Him is to is to acknowledge Him and bow your knee to Him as everything that He is for you in particular.
1: Yeah. Um, do you So you can't do it. Uh, probably a lot of people are familiar with some of the different metaphors or illustrations that have been used to describe faith. What is faith in a biblical sense? I wonder if you could share, do you have a favorite one that you have used before and like to use and think is helpful? And then do you have one that you don't like very much, think it isn't very helpful? Uh, again, helping people understand faith. Uh,
0: I've got a bunch that I do like. So uh, a lot of times I'll, if I'm preaching about faith, I'll say, look, it's, it's, uh, it's a matter of sizing something up and seeing if it's reliable and then relying on it. So, you know, I'll step out from behind the pulpit and sort of kick the pulpit or push on it a little bit <laughs> to make sure that it's solid and then, you know, or a wall or whatever. And then I'll put a hand on the pulpit and literally like take my feet way out so that I'm leaning on that pulpit mm. like a hundred percent. And that does a couple of things. It makes the point about reliability, right? Like I wouldn't do that just to a little music stand because it's not, it couldn't hold me up. It's not reliable. Um, But you can then also turn and make the point that uh, this is why we talk about uh, faith alone in Jesus Christ. So if I kind of stand up straight on my own balance and weight and put my hand on the pulpit, I'm not relying on that pulpit. And I can even take a couple of steps out away from it and be relying 20% on the pulpit to hold me up, but 80% on my own feet. But when I when I like go way out and down, I it's just clear that 100% of my reliance is on that pulpit. And if it gives way, you know I'm toast. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm going down. Same thing with Jesus. You know when you trust in Jesus, you're saying I've sized you up. I believe that you are who you say you are. You can do what you say you can do. Um, and I'm 100% trusting in you. And if you give way, Jesus. It's over for me I got nothing else
1: hmm. then are there any analogies or metaphors that you don't find very helpful
0: uh I don't know you got one in mind i can't, no. <laughs> I can tell you what I think about it not not really i, I, no, I, I don't there's I, I can't think of any that have like stuck with me as really bad mm. i mean there's you know there's 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 ones that get used like you know you're drowning and somebody throws you a Throws your life preserver, yeah. Or, you know, or like faith,
1: fa- faith is an open hand. You got to put your hand out to be saved by God, by Jesus. Uh, but God is the one who grabs you and pulls you. But you got to open that hand first. Something like that.
0: Yeah, I, I actually use the open hand to to talk about faith mm. in the sense of faith is what it, what what I do with that one is say faith is is uh, it's morally empty of itself, right? There's there's no moral virtue in faith. Uh, the moral score of faith is determined 100% by what the faith is in. So, you know, if you say my faith is in if you say my faith is in Satan, right? My reliance is in Satan, well, you get like negative points for your faith. You, there's no virtue in your faith. Yeah. It's 100% determined by what you're what it grabs onto. Um which w- once you realize that, you can make the point against what our world does with faith, our society does with it, which is basically to have faith in faith, hmm. right? So you're a person of faith. You're, a, you know, you're, you get some virtue points for being, for having faith, which essentially is, if you're relying on that before God, if you're going to stand before God and say I was a person of faith, well, the question's going to be, well, faith in what? Hmm. Because basically, what you're doing is trying to. It's like a hand trying to grab itself right you're trying to rely on faith which means to rely on reliance which means to for a hand to kind of tr- try to grab itself which just doesn't it doesn't work yeah yeah faith has to reach out and grab something else and it is empty of virtue um until it grabs onto something which which is a really important theological point too because people will say well, isn't faith a good work and and doesn't the gospel eventually just dissolve into salvation by works, it's just one work, right? It's faith. Mm -hmm. Well, that could be said if the instrument of salvation, if God had set this whole thing up such that the instrument of salvation was really any of the other fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If any one of those, if salvation was by love, then you really could boil it down and say, yeah uh love has a moral value to it uh, just in itself and uh, therefore salvation is by works. But because faith is morally em- or yeah, because faith is morally empty of virtue, um, mm. salvation is by that which it grabs, mm. which is which is Jesus alone.
1: Yeah, wow. So so maybe taking a step back a little bit, we've been talking a little bit about the value of metaphors on some of these fronts to understand these facets of the gospel. And I wonder, how do you think about that more broadly when it comes to teaching people, say your people in your church, in a sermon context or in a small group context or a one-on-one kind of thing, maybe in evangelism, how do you balance um, a clear statement of the propositions of the gospel with the value of using metaphors and illustrations to help people understand what we mean by those words? I think sometimes people maybe go on one of two sides. They're very propositional, and it can... It can actually be hard to grasp what are you what are you saying? What does that mean for me? And then on the other hand, people who maybe just they're constantly spouting a new metaphor illustration, but they're rarely talking about Jesus and the cross and the resurrection.
0: Yeah. well, I, I think they're both important. I think the the most important thing is to make sure that your metaphors are as 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 tight to the meaning of the propositions that you're trying to illustrate as possible. So if you're having to do a whole lot of qualification (laughs) after you give your illustration, it's probably not that great a one. Um, what I mean by that is this, I don't mean that. And if you push it too far, it does blah, blah, blah. You want to do as little of that as possible. Um, and then I think it's really important to, uh, very clearly tie, tie the propositions to the metaphor that you're, that you're making. So don't let the metaphor stand alone, you know, and expect everybody to just get it. They won't. Um, you got you to gotta draw out the parallels hmm. really, really clearly.
1: Yeah. So one interesting thing that people have observed before, uh, so I, I won't be the first one here to note this, is how often our retelling of the gospel, our restatements of the gospel, our summaries of the gospel uh, tend to neglect Jesus's resurrection <laughs> and ascension. Uh, oh, yeah. and and obviously I, I think no true Christian would deny those things as as essential as so important but sometimes it does seem like we tend to forget about them when it comes to how we think about the gospel and how we talk about the gospel uh, have you seen that and if so what do you make of that what's behind that
0: oh I see it all the time uh, we we do membership interviews with everybody that wants to join our church and I would say 30 percent one of the questions we ask them is like take one minute and tell me what the gospel of Jesus is Mm. and I'd say 30% of the people who apply for membership in our church leave the resurrection out they just don't mention it right and I think that's probably uh, you know I I really think it's probably because uh, for whatever set of reasons uh, evangelicals have not thought deeply or well about the doctrine of union with Christ because because that is because union with Christ is sort of the key that that makes uh, it, it's the key that makes the whole the whole gospel make sense right mm. it, it's it's why imputation works it's it's why uh, Jesus can take our sin it's why we can have Jesus's righteousness and and once you get that you you understand why the resurrection is indispensable to the whole thing. It's not just an exclamation mark or a fireworks display at the end of the at the end of the story right. as if it could have worked without it, but God just wanted a happy ending. Like the 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 doctrine of union with Christ says that that whatever happens to Jesus happens to us, right? So so Paul can say you died with Christ. Well, there was no time in my 43 years that I have died either with Christ or not, not with Christ, right? Not really. So where does Paul get off saying, you have died with Christ in Romans 6? Well, it's because of union. What happened to him happened to me. Uh, Same thing in Ephesians when he says that, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. No, I'm not. I'm actually in this fairly dark room talking to you. I'm not seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So in what sense am I? Through union with Christ, because he is seated in the heavenlies, so therefore am I. Well, once you kind of get that, and, it, and it's just a working, it's a theological working out of Jesus saying, I am the vine and you are the branches, yeah. right? that That's what that is. And once you kind of get that and see it, you see why the resurrection is integral. It's because if Jesus, the vine, had remained dead, then all the branches connected to the vine would have remained dead also. Like the only reason that we're resurrected, it's not just like, it's not just like this pinball machine reward that God gives to us like a golden token, right? It's, it's a function of the fact that we are united to Christ like the branches to a vine and the vine is alive. So therefore we are alive. Mm. Um, justification is the same thing. It's not just a golden token that the Lord, you know, flips over to us at a certain moment when we mouth the right words. It is that we become united like the branches to the vine to the one who is justified by right. And and so because he is justified by right, we are united. We as united to him are justified through him. Mm. Um, all the blessings of eternity are ours only because they are his by right. He earned them all. He won them all. They're his. It's like oil flowing down on his head, uh, and only in so far as we're like embracing his knees does that oil flow down over us. Yeah. So it, it's just it's critical, but it shows you how if you don't have the resurrection. You, you you don't have any gospel because what happens to the vine happens to the branches
1: too. Yeah, the resurrection is a gospel issue. <laughs>
0: oh yeah, very
1: much. So so then very why much. why is it then? It seems almost unimaginable that the same percentage of new member applicants at your church, thirty percent, say would neglect to mention the crucifixion, you know, as part of the gospel. What do you have any thoughts as to why that this is kind of the way things are? Why that aspect is maybe not well, seen it's important. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's because if you if you do think of the gospel as just golden tokens that the Lord throws at you for, you know, whatever whatever he looks at Jesus, he sees what Jesus did and then he flips the coin at you. That that non-union mm. understanding of the gospel actually works without Jesus still being alive. Like he didn't have to be yeah. alive for that to happen. Right. God God could look at Jesus' corpse. And see what Jesus has done for you, and flip the golden tokens toward you because of what He's done. Uh, you don't need Him alive for that to happen. It's just not how the Bible talks about it. It's a, mm. it's a gospel of union with the King, uh, such that, and it doesn't work without it. You know, uh, it, uh, only what happens to the King happens to you, mm. um, and so, so that that's, and it, it you know, that that's a. Uh, It's consistent throughout scripture, right? I mean, the reason that original, the doctrine of original sin works is because we are, were, you know, if if you're a Christian, you're not really anymore, but you were, as a human being, united to Adam. And so it's right and good even for God to impute Adam's sin to you. So it's a very consistent sort of, uh, the the sins of the king of Israel get imputed to the nation. The sins of the nation get imputed to the king. Um, And it all has to do with this idea of union. Mm. Yeah.
1: Well, Greg, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with us and uh, help us to understand perhaps a little bit better uh, what the gospel is, get a little bit more clear in our mind what it is, what it isn't, and uh, be better uh, able to articulate it uh, in our churches and among our friends.
0: Yeah. Glad to be with you, man. Thank you for the invitation. Good to talk to you.
1: That was Greg Gilbert on how to rightly understand and proclaim the gospel. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, What is the Gospel? Available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.